Pastor Gary, I love you too. And your faith, your character, your life before the Lord inspires me as it inspires all of us. And we are standing with you. And the Lord is going to give us the victory and breakthrough in Jesus' name. Pastor Jordan, thank you for your leadership and your courage and your faith. I want to just say this before you're seated. You know, I, I have been with you all on this journey now for several years. And one of the things that has continually inspired me and challenged me is the way that I have heard this family speak with faith. They've never one time allowed unbelief. They've never surrendered to the enemy. They have stood their ground in faith, trusting the Lord. I've learned from that and I honor you and I admire you and I wish the worship team wouldn't leave. Can you guys come back? Oh, Jesus. Does anybody in here love Jesus? Do you mind if we just take a couple more minutes here before the Lord? I just sense his presence so wonderfully. And in moments like this, I, I just, I want to lean into it. I don't want to just change the channel and move on. I want to hear your voices overwhelming this sound system. Come You are worthy of it. 
Sing to the Lord a new song from your heart.
Come on, let him touch you. Let him touch you. Pour rivers of living water over you. Don't get in a hurry. Let him touch you. Love on him this morning. Love on him. Let him know that you love Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness.
because you are a good, good father. Come on, would you just thank him for being a good father? Lord, I pray this morning you would shed that grace and that goodness abroad in our hearts. Make us more aware of you, Holy Spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Come on, would you put your hands together for Jesus? The worship team, don't go far, okay, please. I'm gonna call on you again very soon. I'm gonna skip past a lot of the preliminaries. You can be seated this morning. How many of you need to hear from the Lord today? I want to share with you um, a word that's on my heart. Again, I'm going to skip a lot of the other things that I might have talked about as uh, opening remarks and in interest of time. I want to jump right into what I believe the Lord wants to say to us in this service this morning. And then we're going to worship, okay? Because how many of you know that in that place of confidence and rest and trust, worship is born? And worship is one of our most powerful weapons against whatever the enemy throws at us. Now notice I did not say singing. I said worship. Because singing is not always worship. You can worship without music. In fact, you can worship music. You can worship worship music. You can worship worship. But true worship is a turning of our hearts and our attention fully towards the Lord and giving him all that we are. And in that place, we find that the things of earth grow strangely dim as the old song goes in the light of his glory and grace. And so this morning, I know that whatever the problem you're facing, there is an answer for you and it's found in the presence of God. It's found in the face of Christ. And so... I have preached this message before. This is not something I, I just came up with um, for this morning, but I really felt strongly this morning that the Lord wanted me to open this again and to preach it again in this place. And so I want to give you a little bit of the background to this. And by the way, just if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a little bit about where this came from because you know, there are, for, for a person like me, I am a, I'm an evangelist. I was, I was doing some calculations the other day, trying to figure out how many times I had preached the gospel, and um, I, I forget the exact calculation now, but it was over 4,000 times, okay? That, and that doesn't count a lot of the other preaching outside of evangelistic gospel preaching. So I'm a, I'm a guy who has done a lot of preaching, I preached a lot of messages. I preached out of a lot of passages. And yet, how many of you know sometimes there is a thing, a message that is more than just another sermon? It is something that God did in you. It is something that was forged in you through fire. And it's something that when you come out on the other side, you own it in a way where it's not just a word, it's not just a sermon, it's not just a message. It's like a weapon. 
that God has given you. And whenever the enemy comes, the next time he has to face you with your new um, weaponry. You know what I'm talking about? There, there is a sense in which when you have walked through the valley and the fire and the flood with Jesus, your spirit man grows in experience with him to the point where you are not so easily swept away the next time the enemy comes knocking at your door. This is one of the wonderful things about the years that we spend in the Lord is that when, as we're faithful and as we follow him, we grow into him into strong men and women of God. And very often it is these words that God gives us at strategic moments in our lives that make the difference. And so all of that to say, this is one of those words. I remember, for, for those of you that may not be familiar with me, I am a, um, not only an evangelist, but I'm the successor of a very famous evangelist by the name of Reinhard Bonnke. Anybody ever heard, ever heard of Reinhard Bonnke? Now, Reinhard Bonnke was, um, he, he's gone to be with the Lord now. He, he passed away um, a couple of years ago. But before he died, he was, I would say, and I might be a little bit biased about this, but I would say he was the greatest evangelist of our generation. In his lifetime, our ministry was able to lead over 76 million people to Christ. I'm talking about documented decisions for Christ, people that were ushered into local churches to be discipled. It was a, a historic, monumental revival. Even though it wasn't thought of like that, it was thought of evangelism, but how many of you know 76 million people getting saved, that's a move of God, is it not? I became the successor of Reinhard Bonnke when I was 28 years old. Now, some of you are not yet 28 or you are 28 and that seems quite mature to you. For the rest of us, you might scratch your head and ask yourself, what in the world was Reinhard Bonnke thinking to hand his ministry that he had spent 40 years of his life building over to a 28-year-old kid with almost no experience? And there were many days, if I'm completely honest with you, that I felt out of my depth. I felt in over my head. And there's a good reason for that. I was. In fact, if I'm completely honest with you, I still am. People say, how do you do it? And my only answer to them is I have no clue. I'm just, I just put one foot in front of the other and I trust the Lord. And in fact, you know, for those of you that might be in a similar situation, let me just give you a little bit of comfort. You know, I, I was in so over my head that I knew that in order to succeed, the Lord would have to help me. And that's a really good place to be, by the way. But my comfort was in this. I said, Lord, I didn't put myself here. I did not engineer this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't dream of this. You know, there's some people, they dream of preaching to big crowds. That was not me. I was not one of those people. The Lord supernaturally put me in that position. And I said, Lord, if you called me to this place, then you must know something about me that I have yet to discover. And so I just trust you. And as long as you keep parting the sea, I'll keep walking forward. I was asked by a reporter one time in South Africa, right at the beginning, right when that transition happened, this, this lady stood up and she was quite antagonistic. I, I faced a bit of antagonism in those days, as you can imagine. And this reporter said, how do you, she was pointing her finger at me, how do you, a 28-year-old boy, expect to be able to fill the shoes of a man like Reinhard Bonnke? And it felt a little hostile. I was taken back and then suddenly, you know, the Bible says that that uh, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And so sometimes in those moments, you feel the Holy Ghost rise up on the inside of you. And I said to her, ma'am, I have news for you. I don't intend to fill Reinhard Bonnke's shoes. 
I've been called to fill my shoes. That's what I'm gonna do. And as long as I'm in my shoes, I believe there's gonna be grace and anointing to do that work. You just stay in your shoes and God will give you the grace to do the job that he's called you to do. And so there was this season, several years right at the beginning when I really was questioning and wondering if this was going to work. Nothing like this had been done to my knowledge before. I mean, there were many ministries that had been passed on from one generation to the next, but it was always, you know, a a man passing the ministry to his son. I was not related to Reinhard Bonnke. There was no familial connection there. And many people were telling me why it couldn't work. And there was one in particular person in my life at that time that was quite close to me. We spent a lot of time together. And this person would often say to me, you know this cannot work, right? He said, this cannot work. There's no way that you could actually take over the ministry of Reinhard Bonnke. But he would say to me, you know what? Even though it probably won't work, you're gonna learn some good lessons along the way. It's gonna be a good experience that you'll take into the next season of your life. And in the beginning, I resisted this a lot because I really believed that God had called me. In fact, the Lord had spoken to me when I was 16 years old and told me that it was going to happen. So I knew that I knew that I knew that God had called me. And yet, there was this little voice on the one side that kept telling me, it's impossible, it can't work. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so this guy, you know, he would often say this to me. Maybe once or twice a week, we'd be having lunch or we were traveled the world together in those days and he would say these same kinds of things to me. And one day... I found myself talking to a friend about the whole thing. This was somebody else. And I heard the words come out of my mouth. I said, it probably won't work, but at least I'll get some good experience. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but what had happened was I had adopted the voice of unbelief that had come through this other guy. And now it was coming out of my very mouth. And in in that moment, the Lord rebuked me. Anybody ever been rebuked by the Lord? Let me tell you something. People that are worried about the rebuke of the Lord, they just haven't experienced yet. Because yes, it comes to you in a way that is corrective, but it also brings with it a infusion of grace and life. I, I I was rebuked and thrilled at the same time by the word of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to me. I can quote it. He said, don't ever question my word to you again. And in one moment, everything that I'm about to tell you over the next 15 minutes dropped into my heart. I've written about this. I could write about it. I could write a whole book about this. That's how much dropped in. Have you ever experienced this before? Sometimes when the Lord speaks to you, it comes with like a packet of data. And and I don't know how to explain it. It, It's delivered in one moment, but sometimes it takes a lifetime to unpack. That's what happened here. I want you to turn with me. We're there in the book of Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read this very quickly, and I'm going to try to move through this in a way that will get get us through it before my time is up. Of course, this is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You all know this story very well. I want to just refresh your memory that God had created man in his own image. Not like the animals. It wasn't just another creature. This was a creation that had been fashioned and formed by the hand of God himself made in God's very own image. And if that wasn't enough, God himself stoops down over the lifeless form of this creature and breathes his breath into man. So man becomes not only a living being, but a living soul. And then God begins taking this newly formed creature called man on walks in the cool of the day. God begins giving authority and dominion to him. 
basically handing the keys to the entire rulership of the planet over to this new protege made in his image. And I'll tell you what, there was somebody lurking around in those days who had preceded the creation of man. It was the enemy. It was the devil. And the devil is not omniscient. He didn't know what was happening, but I'm sure that this raised some eyebrows when God begins not only making this creature in his image, but basically giving dominion of the earth over to him. The devil was very worried. And so the devil waited and watched, and he was looking for a moment of opportunity, a moment of weakness where he could bring the fall of man. This is where we pick up here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the, word, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you will be as gods knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave to her husband with her, and he did eat. I want you to notice here that the very first temptation, when the enemy has his most opportune moment, when man is at his weakest, the temptation that he pulls out of his deep, dark bag of tricks is to cause Eve to question the word of the Lord to her. And it can be summarized with this one question. Yea, hath God said. Everybody say that. Hath God said. Say it again. Hath God said. And I would suggest to you that those three words, hath God said, form the, the, the hub of the wheel of every temptation that has ever befallen the human race. Every genocide, every murder, every rape, every bit of sin, every bit of lust, every bit of evil that has ever haunted this world has, begin, has begun with those three small, seemingly insignificant words, hath God said. Now I want you to flip over into the New Testament. We're going to go to the book of Matthew. We're going to go to chapter Three, and we're going to read the story of the temptation of Jesus. How many of you know that Jesus didn't just die for us, he also lived for us? In fact, there are different theories of the atonement. Many of those theories focus on the, the sacrificial, vicarious, substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, which is a very important aspect of our atonement. But I want you to understand that Jesus did not just die on the cross for our sins. He was born to a woman, and he lived a sinless life for us also. Why? Because he, he came not only to die in our place, but to live in our place. What Adam got wrong, Jesus got right. That's why he's called the last Adam. He, he is the perfect representation of what man was created to be and intended to be by God when he was made in the Garden of Eden. Do you understand? And so when Jesus was tempted by the enemy, the Bible says he was tempted in all ways and in all points, just like we are yet without sin. He had to do that in order to be a worthy substitute for us. And so here in the wilderness of temptation, Jesus faces the devil 
the same way Eve faced him in the Garden of Eden. Listen to this. Now, we're going we're gonna to begin in chapter 3 at the story of the baptism of Jesus, and then we're going we're gonna to continue to read into chapter 4. Why are we going to do that? Because I'm sure you all realize that when the Bible was written and the way it was inspired, there were no chapter and verse distinctions. It all was one passage. And so very often when we break it up into chapters and verses, there is the potential that we could lose the intended meaning of the author. And that's exactly what's happening here. Many people miss what happened in the wilderness of temptation because they separate it from what happened in the baptismal waters. But watch this. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Then came Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized by him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and are you going to come to me? And Jesus answering said to him, Suffer it to be so for now, for thus it is becoming to fulfill all righteousness. So John suffered him. Then Jesus was baptized, and when he went straightway out of the water, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Everybody say, this is my beloved son. Okay, I want you to notice, this is very important because this has everything to do with the temptation that is to follow. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. The heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father audibly speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Okay, now that's the end of chapter three. The very next verse in chapter four, remember this is all written as one. The very next verse says, chapter four, verse one, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How many of you know that many times those mountaintops are followed by deep valleys? Many times your greatest victories are followed by your greatest battles. If you haven't discovered that, you haven't been in the Lord very long because the devil is not gonna let you coast on the vestiges and sit on the laurels of your great victories for long. He is lurking in the woods to try you again. He did it to Adam and Eve in the garden, and here he does it with Jesus. After he had fasted, verse 2, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter came unto him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, I don't know what you always thought that this temptation was about. There was a time where I thought that the devil was tempting Jesus to break his fast. But I want you to notice it said that this happened after Jesus had fasted. So there was nothing wrong with eating bread. The temptation was not a temptation to eat. I want you to notice that when the enemy has his opportunity to test the very Son of God in the flesh, when he is at his weakest and the enemy reaches down into that deep, dark bag of tricks, what does he pull out to tempt Jesus with? Listen to this. What are the very first words out of his mouth? If you are the Son of God, Remember what God had spoken to Jesus in the waters of the Jordan? What did he say? This is my son. You are my son. Now the enemy questions that by saying, if you are the son of God, prove it. Prove it by doing something miraculous. Do a miracle to show that you really are the one that God said you are. Now listen, it was a few days later at the wedding in Cana of Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. Do you remember what it was? 
He turned water into wine. Interesting. The temptation was to turn stones into bread. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. And the Bible says that at that point, the disciples believed in Jesus because they saw the miracle. But Jesus himself was not convinced of the word that his father had spoken because he saw a miracle. He was convinced by the very fact that those words had come from the mouth of God. That was all the evidence he needed. And what Jesus was saying is, devil, I'm not gonna fall into your trap to look for external evidence to believe the word of the Lord. The proof, the evidence of what the Lord has spoken is that it came from his mouth that is good enough for me and I will stand by it. Man, I could camp out on each of these points, but I have to keep moving. So look, it says, Jesus said in verse four, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that was temptation number one. Here's temptation number two, verse five. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, what? If you are the son of God. Does this sound familiar to you? Remember what the devil had asked, said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Hath God said? Remember that? The very first temptation? Here is the exact same temptation coming to Jesus twice. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. This time the temptation is a little bit different. What should you do? Cast yourself down from this place. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here's what the devil was saying. Jesus, if you are really who God says that you are, prove it by putting him to the test and letting him save you from harm, from destruction, from injury. Listen to what Jesus says. In verse seven, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now listen, can I be honest with you? To me, that sounded like a pretty weak response. Doesn't seem very profound. He just says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But actually, if you look a little bit deeper, you'll see there's something extremely profound going on here. Now, whenever Jesus says, or whenever any New Testament writer says, it is written, what does that mean? It means that they're referring to something that comes from the Old Testament, something that was in their Bibles at the time. You realize that Jesus didn't have the New Testament because it wasn't written yet. So for Jesus and for the apostles, the Bible is what had been written in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, he is referring to something. What is he referring to? Well... Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at this together. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. Listen to this. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is what he's referring to. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Mesa. Huh. You guys remember the story of Mesa and Meribah? Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 17. I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 17. Of course, the children of Israel were walking through the wilderness. They had run out of water. And they began to mumble and complain 
against the Lord. You guys remember this? And of course, ultimately, the Lord provided for them in the wilderness, but not before they had spent a lot of time mumbling and complaining about their lack of provision. Okay, here's what it says, Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. And he called the name of that place Mesa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Listen. The children of Israel in the wilderness, they had been provided for day and night. God had delivered them with a strong, mighty arm out of the hands of Pharaoh and away from the Egyptian army. He parted the sea for them. He caused them to walk across on dry land. He led them with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of, I'm sorry, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He fed them with quail and with manna. He caused the clothes on their back to grow with them over a 40-year period. And the first time they run out of food and water, they begin to complain and ask this question, is the Lord among us or not? And the Bible says that it grieved the Lord and it was a temptation to the Lord. Jesus says when the enemy approaches him there in the wilderness and says, cast yourself off the pinnacle of this temple and see if the angels bear you up in their hands. Jesus said, I am not going to tempt the Lord the way they tempted him in Mesa and Meribah by asking the question, is the Lord among us or not? My proof, my evidence, my confidence is the word that God has spoken. You are my son. This day have I begotten you. Can you say amen? We're going somewhere with this. Then let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. So the first temptation was what? If you are the son of God, which is another way of saying half God said. The second temptation was what? If you are the son of God, which is another way of saying half God said. But in this third temptation, it looks a little bit different until you see what's going on here beneath the surface. And then you realize that these three temptations are the same even if they look a little bit different. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said unto him, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Listen, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. Satan offers the kingdoms and the nations of the world to Jesus in exchange for worship. To understand what is going on here, you have to once again go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Psalms, if you have your Bibles. I know we're flipping around. Forgive me for using so much scripture while preaching the word. The book of Psalms, chapter 2. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to see what's going on here. Remember, this is the one temptation where the devil does not say, if you are the son of God. Instead, the devil says, I will give you all the nations, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Psalms chapter 2, what we're about to read here is what is known as a messianic psalm. What does that mean? It means that even though David is writing here, he is writing it prophetically. 
And so what, what this is, it's not God speaking to David. Ultimately, in its deepest sense, it is the Father speaking to the Son. This is what he says in Psalms chapter 2, verse 6. Yet I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember what Jesus heard from the Father in the waters of the Jordan River? The heavens opened, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, the voice of the Father said what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, here in verse 7, this is the prophetic foreshadowing of that word. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Look at the next verse. Ask of me, the father says, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. In other words, if, if you're not tracking with me, let me break it down for you. When God spoke, when the father spoke to the son in Psalms 2, this is what he said. You are my son, and as my son, the inheritance I will give you is the nations of the world, the kingdoms of the world. I will give you because you're my son. As proof, as evidence that you are who I say you are. And so when the devil approaches Jesus in the garden, I'm sorry, in the wilderness, this is what he says. I know that God promised to give the nations to you. I know he said you're his son. But look, Jesus, I'm the God of this world. He gave the nations to me. I'll tell you what, Jesus. It's clear that your father is unreliable. It's clear that you can't trust him. I'll tell you what, don't worry about that whole cross thing. Don't worry about that whole promise thing. Why don't you worship me and I'll give you the nations? You don't even have to die on a cross. You don't even have to lay your life down. Just worship me and I will fulfill the word of the Lord to you. I'll tell you what, I think sometimes we miss amidst the divinity of Christ the implications of his humanity. Because Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully man. And on this earth, he had walked in such a way that he had divested himself of the privileges that accompany divinity so that he was living like you and like me in this world. What, what does that mean? It means that Jesus, even though he was divine, even though his nature was divine, even though he was fully God, he wasn't able to do trigonometry at three years old. He didn't have infinite, unlimited knowledge of the universe and of the future and of the past. He was like you and me. Do you know what that means? There were moments when he was confused. There were moments when he was perplexed. There were moments when he was discouraged. There were moments when he felt weak. There were moments when he felt afraid. If you don't believe it, sneak up on him in the Garden of Gethsemane and see him sweating, as it were, drops of blood, saying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet in that moment of weakness, in that moment of difficulty, when Jesus probably didn't have the answer to the dilemma that was being posed to him in that moment, 
Yeah, Jesus, the Lord said you're a son. He said he'd give you the nations. Instead, he gave the nations to me. What does Jesus say? <laughs> Worship team, come back. I'm going to need you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Verse 10. Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shalt thou serve. I want you to see this. I want you to see the visual of what's happening here. The enemy is assaulting him from the front. There is confusion. There is pain. There is frustration. There is weakness. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, devil, you get behind me. And by the way, you can keep your doubt, you can keep your unbelief, you can keep your questions. I'm not even gonna explore that with you. I'm not even gonna investigate that. We're not gonna dissect this. We're not gonna get into a Bible study to try to figure out why God has abandoned me and what the reasons are and what the problem is. Instead of trying to figure out what's happening here, I'm turning my back on you. I'm turning my back on your voice. I'm turning my back on your unbelief and I'm gonna worship. And the Bible says, very next verse, verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and ministered unto him. <laughs> Can I tell you something? No matter what you're going through, there is a perfect response. No matter what you're going through, there is one response to that problem that is perfect. How do I know it's perfect? Because Jesus himself used it in his moment of temptation and weakness. You turn your back on the voice of the enemy. You turn your face to the Lord and you worship him. So we're gonna worship. Just stand to your feet with me. Let's get the whole band out here. We're gonna worship. We're gonna worship, we're gonna worship. What are you going through? What do you need victory over? It's time to worship. You say, Daniel, you don't know the pain that I'm going through. You can worship your way through the pain. You say, Daniel, you don't know the confusion. You don't know the, 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 the problems. You don't know the pain, the weakness, whatever it is. The perfect response is worship. I want you to see this. This is very important because even though the Lord had spoken to Jesus, God had spoken the Father had spoken to the Son in the waters of the Jordan River. You are my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Listen, Jesus did never say to the devil, devil, I know that I'm God's Son because he told me so in the waters of the Jordan River. He never pointed back to the experience. That's not where he found his strength. That's not where he found his defense. He found it in the Word. He said, it is written. Let me tell you why. Because those experiences you have on the mountaintop, those feelings you have, those things you hear that are so clear to you in the mountaintop experiences, they can become very faint in the valley. And if your trust and your faith is in your experience, you will find yourself being easily shaken. But there is a rock upon which you can build your life that will never be shaken. It is unchanging. It is forever settled in heaven. 
God honors this word above his very name. The flowers and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can live by it. You can die by it. You can anchor your life upon it. You can stake everything on it. You can risk everything. You can put all your eggs into this basket because it will never fail. It will never let you down. And no matter how rough the ride becomes, you can look back and say, it is written. So we're going to worship in just a moment, but I want to, I want to just give you some it, it is written, okay? And some of you are going through things that you need, and it is written for you this morning. So let me give it to you. Philippians 4.19, it is written, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Psalms 91.15, it is written, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Proverbs 11.18, it is written, to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Matthew 6.30, it is written, if God so clothed the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Luke 10, 19, it is written, I will give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing, nothing, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Psalms 91, 10, it is written, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh your dwelling. Psalm 31, 19, it is written, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. James 5, 15, it is written, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up again. Psalm 55, 22, it is written, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 34, seven, it is written, the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him, and he delivereth them. Psalms 37, five, it is written, commit your way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Psalms 113.9, it is written, he maketh a barren woman to keep house and to be the joyful mother of children. It is written, Psalms 136.1, his mercy endures forever. It is written, 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. It is written, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is written, he has made us more than conquerors through him that loved us. It is written, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Come on, somebody say amen. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that your word brings our Provision. Your word brings our healing. Your word brings about our victory. Your word brings our breakthrough. Lord, your word makes us more than conquerors. I speak right now into the soul of every person that's listening to me. Let faith arise in their hearts right now in Jesus' name. Let faith arise in their hearts right now in Jesus' name. Supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Courage. Confidence that carries great reward. Lord, I thank you that you make us strong, that you make us bold, that you give us courage. Whatever we're facing, Lord, in Jesus' name, by my God, I can run past a troop and leap over a wall. I look unto the hills where my help comes from. My help comes from you, Lord. So, Father, whatever it is that we're facing, we turn our backs right now on the enemy. We turn our face toward you, Lord, and we worship.
Come on, would you just do that right now? Just begin to worship Him out of your heart. Just begin to worship Him. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Say, Lord, I worship you. I worship you in my wilderness. I worship you in my valley. I worship you in my weakness. I worship you in temptation. I worship you, Lord. Whatever it is that you're going through, just tell Him, Lord, as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice, I worship you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. Is your name, Jesus. Jesus. You deserve the praise. Yes. Worthy is your name. team to come forward right now some of you need to grab a hold of somebody's hand and agree with them the Bible says that if any two of you agree about touching any one thing it will be done for them if you need somebody to lay hands on you if you need somebody to agree with you in faith if you're sick and you need a miracle come right now if you need a breakthrough in your mind a breakthrough in your body a breakthrough in your finances whatever it is I want you to come right now we're gonna agree with you in faith and believe God for a miracle in your life and in the meantime, let's just worship Him. Come on, turn your eyes to the Lord right now, everybody in this place. Come on, just tell Him, worthy is your name, Lord. You deserve the praise, you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name, Jesus.
church, come on. Just begin to thank him in advance for whatever you are praying for, whatever you are believing for. Just let gratitude flow forth. We thank you, God. We thank you in advance. We thank you in advance, Father, for it is written. It is written. We bless your name, oh God. You are so good. We stand in awe of who you are, God. We stand in awe of who you are. We bless you, Lord. We worship your name. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. I'm going to read the ironic blessing, but I'm going to ask the worship team to just keep leading for a few minutes and moments, and you can stay in these altars and worship and pray. This is by no means a closeout, uh, but I do believe in blessing. I do believe in the blessing of God. And I don't want you to forget about the night of worship tonight as well. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is the way that you shall bless the children of God. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the children of God and I will bless them. I will bless them. Our altar team is still down here in the altars for prayer. If you want to keep pressing in, feel free. You're more than welcome to stay, press in, lift up his name. Amen. I want to encourage you also, if you have not sown into that word, sow in it. This morning, we love you. We'll see you tonight. God bless.